Criminal Magic, Chapter 10. Tuesday, 3.42, GMT-5. At times, we must surrender to the help that is offered, and occasionally find that it is more than we deserved. Butterflies dip and dither above the aged stands of yellow rose fencing the garden. Answer kneels, kneading the soil as if it were meaty dough. He gouges and trowels with clawed fingers at the thick, grainy loam, massaging until the soil releases the scents locked within the prisons of its deeply compacted clots. Here is the rye and woody flavor of decay, the fulsome sweetness of promise. A pinching sourness heralds regret, the remains of last year's okra rising to infiltrate the present. Gardening is a relief. On his hands and knees, removing grubs, snubbing the insistence of weeds, Answer feels serenity flowing through him. Soil nurtures his sense of stability. Without this intimate connection to the earth, he feels certain he would begin to act erratically. The blush of early sweet tomatoes is the kind of promise he relies on. An earthworm the size of his little finger writhes, freshly exposed. He brushes dark earth back over its moist coils. A bird calls. He looks up from his work, rocking back to sit on his heels as he scans the skies for the source of the call. The Sweska cliffs rise from the Verdant Valley below. The shallow river there meanders through impossibly green fields of wheat and corn. Nothing. Again the call. It's not right. He stands, shaking the dirt from his hands. An owl? How strange. Owls don't call in the middle of the day. Again, the call, insistent, repeated more than once. Then the light falls from the sky. A dream. Answer stands out of bed quickly, upright in the dark. Owls don't live in the valley. Alone in the clean blackness of his bedroom, he is fully awake. Crickets saw the night to pieces. The bright scent of cedar perfumes the bedroom. Answer hears grains of gravel grate against one another. His feet slip across the waxed floorboards as he glides toward the window at the rear of the house. He hesitates at the pile of clothes laid at the foot of his bed, slides his hand into the pocket of his pants and retrieves the shock stick he forgot to take out earlier. He takes a deep breath, standing stock still. In the silence, the full clamor of nighttime silence, he can detect anything that might not belong. Breathing. He can hear breathing. More than one, still outside but close, breathing, labored. That's a plus. If it was locals, they'd be adjusted to the altitude. And they'll only have reconnaissance, not knowledge of the ground. Answer puts his palms together and closes his eyes, letting the air slip from between his pursed lips. Helical ellipses of lariat, lazy light, pulses of confusion fall away from his body. Their circumference spreads like the flight of circles in a pond fleeing a thrown stone. He glides over to the window and slides it aside. Better to be away from the house. Inside is a prison. Your hiding place contains your strategy. Open ground, open defense, escape. Answer's mind is not held captive by any foolish sensibility of defense. If you are unarmed, outnumbered, then surprise flight is a highly desirable option. His eyes strain starlight from the night sky. He steps onto the narrow roof that circles the wooden structure. With every passing second, his senses awaken. As he crouches, readying himself to drop to the ground, 
He exhales the confusion out toward his flanks. He swings off the ledge as quietly as possible and drops to the ground. As he hits, a knife barely misses his throat, glancing instead lightly off the stooped curve of his shoulder blade. Without a sound, Answer slaps backward with his left hand, catching the unseen assailant solidly with the shit stick. Whop! There is a woofing grunt, followed by the fat slap of dead weight being dropped from a height. Answer swings around, sweeping close to the ground. His hands find the body, tracing the reach of the arm. He quickly relieves the twitching body of a knife, a snub-nosed pistol, and with a savage twist of the newly acquired blade, any remaining life. He rises to run. A shot, too, then a fusillade rips the night, echoes of discharge thundering out across the darkened valley. Answer drops and rolls behind the body now lying next to his cabin. Several rounds slap into it. He tenses his legs and leaps. Rocky ground is not suitable for rolling, but he rolls anyway. Bullets hound his flailing, awkward, painful movement down the hill. Down here! He's down here! Just one voice. Answer prone now in a field of low rocks fires at the voice. No more fire comes from that source. No getting away. The weapon feels like plastic. Answer knows he can't help criticizing the weapon, but he does. Despite his situation, hate plastic, shit's always jamming, blowing up, but better than nothing at the moment. He knows where he is now, down in the hill, above Vitorino's stable. He runs low, trying to keep the boulders between him and the house. They'll be coming, but slower now that they know a couple of their boys are down. He hears footsteps, just in time to get crouched with his back against a rock. The only sound the dog makes is a snuffling growl muffled by the saliva in its mouth. It launches at him when it realizes he is still and backed by something solid. Answer drives his blade into its chest, but not before it has bitten his arm half a dozen times. Motherfucker! He rises and runs, hidden for the moment by a row of eucalyptus trees. His feet barely feel the attack on them by the coarse points of eucalyptus nuts. Shots ring out and some lights flash on the downhill shack at Volsonosos. More shots and the lights blink out. No help there. He is well below the house now. Another 200 meters and he'll be at the depot. Another dog. He hears it just in time to turn, get down. As it leaps, he makes it out against the sky. One shot, it drops at his feet. They must have bought a whole fucking kennel. Bullets gouge the ground, spraying him with gravel shrapnel. A huge force suddenly lifts him off his feet. He rolls in the air, reflexively tightening into a ball landing on the run. A slick warmth runs down his left leg. Shot. Amid an intense rain of gunfire, he throws himself flat, landing with rib-bruising intensity in a shallow culvert. Scrambling on hands and knees, he scuttles 40 meters and reaches the curving sidewall of the water cistern stash. Time to take a deep breath. More men are coming. He hears the scramble of boots on rock, the labored breath of runners whose lungs are not used to operating at 3,000 meters. Answer reaches into the hidey hole at the stash and grabs a pair of glare goggles, slaps around into a fat-bellied gun, and pops one off. Suddenly, it's noon. A phosphorus flare dangling from its handkerchief-sized parachute shocks the pastoral hillside with a rapture of intense white light. Three men, arrayed along the hill at distances of 20 to 70 meters from Answer's position, stumble to a halt. They are blinded. 
All of them wear some sort of infrared gear, and now it amplifies the light to the point of temporary blindness. By now, Answer has the long-barreled MG3 he stashed there unlimbered. He gets the nearest hunter in the chest, one down. The one furthest out rips off his headgear and falls to the ground. Answer taps number two where he kneels, trying to take cover behind a low rock that cannot possibly hide his bulk. He cranks another round in, slaps the scope into the slider gates, and goes for the remaining low boy. Concrete shrapnel flies over his scalp as the load slams into the sidewall of the cement cistern. It is followed by an, another, just over his head. Behind me, a backup team, shit. He flops his body to the far side of the drainage ditch, rolls two meters and risks a peak. Three more shooters are advancing from the road below, where it curves past his garage. He downs the lead man with four shots from the long gun. Lead peppers the hill like rain. These boys are heavily armed. Several rounds land in the dirt right next to him. The uphill gunner is back. The men downhill are closer now. The flare grounds, sputtering, setting off every hillside object in a long, shadowy shiver against the backdrop of darkness. He rips off the goggles and wriggles back toward the cistern. Gotta get my hands on the starlighter. A grenade hits him in the ribs. He grabs it and heaves it out. Another one lands three meters to his right. He throws himself toward the partial shelter of the cistern tube as it blows. Answer spits bits of rock and dirt from his mouth. His head is pounding intensely. Gotta breathe. Jesus, his right arm is lying underneath him. As he rolls onto his back, he sweeps out his arm and finds the pistol. Men's voice is very near now. He raises the pistol, summons all his energy and crawls to the lip of the ditch. The uphill shooter is running, stumbling down the slope towards his position. No good. Out of range. A slug slams into the dirt next to his neck. His ears are ringing. He rolls onto his back, forces himself to raise his left arm to help the right steady his grip. A man's head shows over the edge. Answer shoots him point blank. Another man's head. Answer squeezes. No more bullets. The last man points his weapon and Answer thinks, well, goddamn. Then... The anonymous hitter is lifted off his feet, flying out of Answer's field of vision. Another shot stabs at renewed darkness. Abrupt silence. Answer begins rolling, digging his elbows into the hard scrabble earth to help move himself toward the stash in the cistern. Gotta get the other gun. Sudden pressure on his back. Can't move. Feels like a foot. It shifts. Hands grip his shoulders and flop him onto his back. The end looms. Finish it is all he can manage. What? You still got the appetite for that shit? Comes the voice. Sure as hell must think you're tough. Answer sees a woman's face hovering over him, realizing that he recognizes the voice. Might Trace piss you off that bad? As consciousness takes flight, the last thing he hears is, nobody gets my private number, Jack. I mean, nobody. Tuesday, 5.31, GMT-5. Betrayal. Images of treason, fraternal bloodletting, and murderous conspiracy. Rafe Kohler's agile mind refuses to linger on the sordid aspects of the world when he can instead focus on its musical roundness and mellifluous tonal shape. Striding down the tiled hallway, he breaks the word apart inside his head. Be-tray-all. Be-trail. 
betray all. Amusing. As he turns the corner, leaning into the swinging door with his forearm, he realizes that his lips are moving in sync with the rhythmic, silent repetition of the syllables. So many ways to talk to ourselves. Inside the laboratory, everything is funeral home quiet. The hiss of gas jets sponges the air clean of all other ambient sound, empty as a church on Monday. No one else works this early, even the most ardent lab rats. Exhaustion rarely produces innovative thinking. That never stopped me, Rafe thinks. Never. At the back of his office, windows glow the shaky blue of sleeping computers. Rafe settles into the hollow of a shabby chair, edging up to the desk so he can shuffle through the wad of reports and memos that litter its surface. Hate paperwork. Twenty minutes into the sorting process, annoyed with the boredom of housekeeping, he pushes himself up from the work table and moves back onto the lab floor. This place, this secret place, is home now. There is no birthplace, no national allegiance, no beckoning family to call him back from this frontier. But all of this, the hidden maze of labs populated by those loyal to the plan, the front in San Luis de Chascal dedicated to the Amazon Direct Action's social and political development projects, the deep and deliberately crafted relationships with the people of the Orinoco Basin, none are what they appear. They are nothing more than a social mirage, a convenience arranged to last only as long as their purpose is served. Everything here is reduced now, shrunken in his mind to a string of anonymous integers in the calculus of betrayal. And it doesn't matter. The brutality of facts once had the capacity to move him, but somewhere in the last few years, all that was lost. Things have changed. There was no way any of us could know what was going to happen. He shakes his head, reaffirming this pact with himself. Too close to stop now. No going back from here. He can name the turning point. Ten years have passed since Ramon Quirau, the Uwa shaman, took him and two others up one of the countless unnamed canyon streams in the Sierra Nevada de Cucuy. Follow me, and I will show a place where there are some very special plants growing, Ramon told Rafe. The two men had developed a strong connection over the preceding three years. Although the old man found Rafe and his way of seeing the world unusual, he knew that the foreigner's dedication to the work of staving off oil developers was strong. For two days, they crept through the steamy jungle quebrada, edging relentlessly through the sweat of dense jungle up into the belly of the sacred forest canopy. This small stream is the house of the living waters, Ramon told him. The Uwa are called the thinking people because we take care of all that lies below us. Why can't we travel up the Sarari or move down into the Llanos along the Apure for our survey, said one of the two scientists. There are probably a large number of the same curative plant forms located within reach of the river, and it'd be a hell of a lot easier gathering samples. Can't go there, Rafe answered. Uwa cosmology doesn't allow trespassing on certain parts of their world. He took an idle whack at a beetle whose wings were practically beating his ear and downed a drink of water. Since it's their job to uphold the balance of the sky and the land, they have to make sure no one walks on certain parts of God. That's right, said the other botanist, a young woman from France on her first tour of the Orinoco Basin. All these trees, even the mountaintops, are sacred ground. 
we can't harvest along the riverbanks because the main stems are sacred as well, all the way from the lakes and headwaters down to the ocean. Ramon just stood there looking at them. He may have been thinking how dense Riowa, the outsiders, can be. He had seen for himself that they had to be told not to fish or bathe in the big waters. Sometimes they appeared to be passing over the land where they stepped, like sleepwalking children. But he saw through the filter of bias into the contradiction of knowing, knowing that these strangers were only stepping on the sacred land because he and other elders from the many clans had invited them here. It was an alliance the Uwa made for the sake of saving their ancient homelands. When Occidental slid into the jungle looking for oil during the 90s, governments on both sides of the Andes let them in for a toss. Even though the Tama was a national park straddling the border of Colombia and Venezuela, and the Uwa vigorously contested their development plans, money was louder. They were going to do whatever it took to make the project profitable. The Uwa say that oil is the blood of the world. They learned it from the Aisha visions, the songs and dreams that bring the world into being. The maintenance of the balance occurs sometimes through the unwrapping of chance, and so they made themselves ready to work with this strange coalition of eco-activists and politicians, even though the very idea was as alien to their thinking as the notion that plastique is a problem solver. There were troubles. To the Riowa, action sometimes meant the use of force. This was a sore point between the partners. Conflict was something the Uwa were famous for avoiding. For thousands of years, they had been the peacemakers of the jungle. The name of their very language meant soul of the people. And so while all the players agree that the vast biodiversity of the Orinoco must be preserved and protected, the Uwa and its outside alleys quickly came to friction over the solutions. Rafe moves through the lab's darkness with the familiarity of a shadow. Halfway back to the entry, he pushes against a sidewall door. With a flick of a switch, the room leaps into startled whiteness. An enormous scanning electron microscope dominates the far wall. He steps over and sets about programming the machine for a scanning operation. He draws a series of sample flats out of a short cabinet and takes a seat at the video monitor. With one hand, he activates the device, and with the other, he cues up the brightness on the screen. Within moments, legions of quivering misshapen cells swarm across the panel. At all points on the glass, the population swells as he watches. Bloating, elastic strands and worm-like curves pulse, expand, duplex, and snap apart as cell mitosis ensures that the microscopic metropolis lying on the slide rushes toward a crisis of overpopulation. Rafe looks up, checking the time on the digital clock. So much going on in the world and all of it happening more or less at the same time. How to keep track? Time, so artificial and so useful. The direct action team is on its way. He hopes the explosives are well-placed, all part of the plan. He returns his attention to the monitor unblinkingly taking in the rampant expansionist drama unfolding there, watching as every centimeter of territory on the slide falls to the uninhibited growth. The spectacle, the sheer inexorable crush of the siege, never ceases to amaze him, and its fear-inspiring course never alters. 
Cancer cells live this way, immortal to the point of self-extinction, the victims of the zero-sum conspiracy between the telomere and telomerase, which allows one group of cells to live forever, dominating all others, inflating their own numbers until the host to their invasion is destroyed by overcrowding. When an auditorium can't hold any more people, spectators usually stop coming. At the cellular level, this is where apoptosis, cell suicide, acts as an insurance against overcrowding. With cancer cells, it's as if the building manager just keeps inviting more fans, shoving the spectators in, jamming them through the doors, packing them in on top of one another until the rafters sunder, and the finite space of the auditorium just blows apart. They might as well call it crowded house syndrome. He dials the scope in with a toggle switch, refining the focus and depth of field as he waits for a new sample to cycle in and the growth to gain momentum his mind falls back to the long-ago hike with Ramon. Ramon, look at this. Rafe summoned the old man's attention with a loose wave. Ramon was kneeling, stooped beside a clear running creek, palming water into his mouth. He looked up. In his free hand, the bearded outsider held a fan-like wand of plant whose branches and leaves resembled a type of seaweed. This is Amati, said the old man dismissively. I've never seen anything like this before, not even in the literature. Do you use it in any of your traditional medicines? Does it have any curative powers that are known? A flare of regret streaked across Ramon's face. Of all things, the Uwa do not use this plant. It is not one of the plants I was going to show you. Rafe persisted, sensing something behind the dismissal. But is this a plant that you know? Does it have properties we might find useful? Ramon, anything we can distill from plants or herbs that have been used by curanderos like you might be a huge gift to the world. It could be converted into a way to make money so your people can keep the sacred land free from the developers. Don't hold back. Ramon felt the energy, knew by the smell of the jungle that a spell was afloat. And what about the Amati? It grew nowhere but in the smallest defiles at the heights of the cloud forest. There was no possibility it had come to be in this place at this time by chance. But the outsider was already a captive in the ancient snare. The resistance would be futile. Better to say what there was to say and watch. Ramon sighed. It was for him like watching a flood breaking through a dike. Legend says the Longbones used it in their soup, said the old man. Longbones? Rafe held the frail tangle of brush aloft, examining it against a backdrop of filtered sun. Its orange wood appeared light, hollow like milkweed in summer. What are Longbones? I haven't heard you talk about them before. There are many things we have not spoken of, the old man muttered as he finished rinsing his face in the cool water. The long bones are not things. Long ago, they were a people. The people of the Niblina. Were? Fog people? Rafe asked. What happened to them? Were they from the clans? Bribiru or Guicanes or? No. Ramon cut off Ray's speculation as he rose and began walking away from the stream's rocky course. This is not good. 
He felt it beginning deep in his stomach. The not rightness was rising, but he could not stop it. They were never of the speaker's clans. They were, from the beginning, apart from the people, living up here in the high places where no one was meant to see them. He looked around cautiously at the foreigners now standing in a loose circle around him. When the Uwa sang the world into being, all that was fixed between the earth and the sky came under the people's care. The high points support the sky and set its feet on the earth. The earth is the skin of the living world and we are its guardians, but there were others. Ones who came to being along with the song of the sky and the land, they were called long bones. The statement was followed by a sound, not a word, but a long suing that issued forth from Ramon's mouth and lay into the world as softly as the tone of a light wind passing through a narrow gorge. Oh, came the exhalation. And although the strangers never before heard such a thing, they knew in their guts that a spell was being cast around them, offering some protection from the harm of accidental touching. Why? The young woman asked, her face drawn into a frown of confusion. Why what? said Pandramon. Why long bones? Her voice was hushed, though there was no need for quiet. Because it is said that they were eaters of the meat that cannot be hunted, the soft meat in the long bones. The old man was staring at the ground now, wearily shaking his head side to side. Then looking up, gazing deep into the eyes of his questioners, he said, the bones of men. The four walkers stood drawn in place, unmoving. Bird calls resounded through the canyons, rising skyward in pipes of sound plumbed through the smoked yellow light of jungle. Water sang over creek rocks, its sweet melody falling away downhill. Cannibals? Rafe was the first to utter the word. The old man nodded. And you say they used this? Rafe shook the amati in their soup. What for? It is said they used it so they could live forever. Ramon raised his eyes to meet Rafe's. By drinking the soup, they were the ancient evil, part of the natural world. Here, like the light, the jaguar, or the speckled bear, from the beginning of becoming, they always lived in that place. He waved a desiccated finger toward a distant cloud-shrouded mass. There, on the shore of the Tagobaui. What does it mean? Agua culebra de piedra? Asked the increasingly nervous younger man. Water snake of rock. The words stole from between Ramon's lips like chilled smoke rising from a breach in solid ground. His fingers wove a nervous basketry. That is what the singers called the freshwater caiman, he whispered. What you say, the crocodile. We will be back next week with Chapter 11 of Criminal Magic, 
Thank you for listening, and if you like what you hear, please leave a rating or review, and tell some friends about this podcast.